morning we're finishing off our, our series on the, the character and attributes of God, the shadow of the Almighty. And even this, this week as I'm studying, I'm recognizing how woefully short this, this series falls. I mean, how in the world do you talk about God? You know, I'm God in six easy lessons. This doesn't, doesn't cut it, especially, you know, 30 minutes a shot. Um, we're hit, we've hit five and today will be six, but we need to know that there are many, many other attributes of God. And we barely scratched the surface on any of the ones that we did talk about. But the goal is, of course, that we'll be able to peer through the scratch that we've made and look into the depths of, of the heart of, of God. Because bottom line is, we cannot trust somebody we don't know. And to the extent that we know him, to that extent we'll be able to trust him. So if you're looking for a way for your faith to grow, you want your faith to grow, there's no greater quest than be on a quest to understand and know God, as he's revealed himself in, in his word. And so today we're going to be wrapping up this series and we look at the a character quality of God that really makes his heart beat. It's, it's at the, the center and that is his love and his grace. And we're going to be looking at a, a big brother story. But let me do a survey first of the, of the body. How many of you all growing up, you had a big brother or you have a big brother? Can I see your hands? Okay, okay, poor folk, I understand you. Now, how many of you all... Our big brothers. Okay, raise your hands high. Don't be ashamed. Don't. Come on, come on, come on. Shame on you. Shame on you. Yes, yes, I was a big brother. I know how this works. And your kid brothers and sisters know how this works, too. I've got three younger brothers, and if they would get together and write my biography, it would be titled something like uh, Depravity Incarnate. You know, my life with Mark Harris, that kind of a thing. I remember one, one summer day, and it was, it was summer, I know, because our front door was open. We're in Chicago, and the houses in my neighborhood were like right on top of each other, you know, just a couple feet between, between them. And my mom and I are just sitting in our living room talking, and we're talking about who knows what, I'm not sure. About, I'm about 17, and we're just talking, and all of a sudden, middle of the day, my kid brother, my, one of my three, middle one, Timmy, comes bolting through. And he's wearing nothing but a smile, and he's singing The Streak. Remember that wonderfully edifying song? And he comes, he runs right through by us, and he goes through the kitchen, back down the hall, and my mom and I kind of look at each other, and we laugh, oh! And, and uh, door opens, Timmy comes out for round two. And he's added a goofy dance with this, right? So he, he comes by us, and he stops right in front of us, and he shows us his glory, and, and then he goes back around and back down the hall. And my mom and I are just howling at this. We just think this is hilarious door opens Timmy comes back for round three and what happened in those next few moments would go down in Harris lore as this hugely controversial issue I'm not sure what came over me but but Timmy comes running in front and he stops in front of us he does his dance and he's mooning me a little bit he's showing us all his glory and I get up and I just kind of grab hold of him and I start walking him towards the front door I got I've got like 10 years on him at this point in history right and I pop the front door open and I chuck him outside. And I think I chucked him a bit too hard because he went down our cement stairs. Boom, 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 boom. And then my mom's got this fantastic planter at the foot of the stairs and he bangs into this thing and there's flowers and there's dirt and there's this naked nine-year-old boy and legs and he's jumping up trying to make sure no one has seen him and he runs up the stairs. And at that point, you know, I realized my, my, my sin. I realized I should have locked the door. <laughs> Wouldn't that have been great? Oh, I forget. Anyway, you think of these things afterwards, right? And so he comes in, and I'm laughing. My mom, you've got to know my, my family. Uh, this gives you some idea of where I'm coming from. My mom is laughing so hard, she's crying. No grace or mercy in our house. She's laughing. Family reunion, many, many years later. Timmy had uh, just gotten out of the Marine Corps. 
and he, and he, he won, and I, I'm, I'm serious about this. He won his bodybuilding contest with Mr., I think, Mr. Southern USA. I mean, he was just massive. And he comes walking up behind me at the family reunion, and he poof, puts his arms around me, locks them, and he whispers, Mark, remember that day? <laughs> We're walking towards the front door. I'm thinking, oh, what's going to happen here? Luckily, he's a little more sanctified than I was, and so uh, nothing happened. But he does threaten me with that from, from time to time, so I'll take that one to my grave. Big brothers are notorious for the way they treat their kid brothers. Isn't it that true? Lots of big brother stories in the Bible. You've got uh, Esau and Jacob. You've got Joseph and his older brothers. We know what happens there, right? You've got Samuel and his adopted older brothers, Hophni and Phinehas. But the most famous big brother story we want to look at this morning uh, the likes of Charles Dickens and Ralph Waldo Emerson have said that this is the greatest short story ever written. We call it the story of the prodigal son. And you might say, well, hang on, wait a minute. There's a big brother and prodigal, the prodigal son. This is about the kid brother, not the big brother, right? No. See, this is how we, we misunderstand this sometimes. But, but Jesus has given us this story for the purpose of us seeing inside the father's heart. And what makes the father's heart beat and his desire in sharing the story is that you and I would have a heart like the father. And so if you got your Bibles, you want to look at Luke chapter 15, Luke chapter 15. And if you didn't bring your Bible on the pew in front of you, there should be one. And I think it's page 1013 somewhere along there. Luke chapter 15. And you'll notice that the prodigal son parable doesn't start until verse 11 but we need to understand the context why was this parable given and so chapter 15 verse 1 it says now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him but the pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered this man welcomes sinners and eats with them to, again understand the context we want to see who's at the table here right Who, who's at the who's at the party we've got two groups of people actually three you've got the tax gatherers and the sinners you get the scribes and the Pharisees, or the Pharisees and teachers of the law, and you've got Jesus, right? Those are the three groups of people who are right, right here. And what is the issue that's on the table, right? The Pharisees, they, they, they muttered that this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, that, this is a very substantial thing, because see, the Pharisees understood the, the, the lines of demarcation. I'm kind of a visual person, so I've got a graph for you. And you need to know that when Jesus was here on earth, he was getting hammered by the Pharisees for like three things on a regular basis. One was the Sabbath, his breaking the Sabbath. One was the Pharisees thought, the second one he thought the Pharisees thought he claimed too much for himself. And the third thing was this, Jesus hung out with the people outside the circle. See, the Pharisees knew what it meant to be approved by God, what it meant to get his blessings, what it meant to make him happy. And that was, that was a strict adherence to the, the trivialities of the law. I mean, you had to be committed sacrificially to the peculiarities of understanding what the rabbis would say about how the law works. Moses, when he went up on the mountain, God gave him ten commandments, but God gave him shortly after that 614 total. I mean, there's lots and lots and lots of laws, and you needed to know these and understand all the nuances and how they related to your life. And if you were committed to that, you were on the inside. Now, folk on the outside, not just Gentiles, okay, that's easy enough. Everyone knows that they're, they're dogs, they're not part of this thing. But, but people on the outside were the Jewish folk who should be on the inside. 
who've decided that they didn't want a life following the law anymore. They basically have turned their back on God, certainly on the Jewish nation. This was the tax gatherers, the Jewish people who've decided to side with Rome against Israel. These were the prostitutes. These were the, the murderers. These were the folk who knew the law, but said basically, forget it. I want nothing to do with it. They were on the outside. And Jesus, one of his problems was that he hung out with those people on the outside. Remember? He had, he had Zacchaeus, and he had Matthew, and he had the woman caught in adultery, and on and on and on and on. He hung with those people, and the folk on the inside couldn't understand it. And so that's, that's the issue. And so Jesus, talking to these folk, says, I want to tell you three stories. First story, it's the lost sheep. You know the story, right? Jesus telling the story. He said, there was a shepherd who had 100 sheep. And they counted them one day, and he had 99 of them. And what did he say? Did he say, well, I've got 99. Losing one's not too big of a deal. No, he didn't say that. He leaves the 99, and he goes looking for the one. And when he finds it, he says, when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there'll be more rejoicing. You said rejoice, rejoice, rejoicing. In heaven, over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. So let me give you another story. It says there's, there's a gal. She's got 10 coins. Maybe this is her, her dowry. She's not getting married without these 10 coins. But she counts them up one day, and there's only nine. And she knows she hasn't left the house, so it's somewhere in the house. So she has this major spring cleaning thing, tears the house apart, and she finds it. And it says that when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus says, let me give you another story. He's going to say there was a man who had two sons. Now, stop. You see the progression of the stories? You've got a guy with 100 sheep. You've got a woman with 10 coins. You've got a man with two sons. And he's going to camp on this, this next story for a little bit of time. In the story, there's three characters. The two sons and the man, and they represent the three people from, from verse 1 who are around the table. I'm going to let you figure out who represents who. But he says that there, verse 11, he says, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to the father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had for a distant, left for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Now, a couple of different things with this. The way it would work is typically the younger son would be, would be subject to part of the inheritance. They're going to give the older boy two-thirds, and in this case, the younger son would get a third. Personally, as an older son, I think that's the way it should work, right? The older one gets two-thirds, and the one gets, that's the way it should be. And he was going to get this, but he wasn't going to get it until after the father died. For him to request his inheritance before the father died was paramount to saying, Dad, I wish... You were dead. I have a plan for my life, and it does not include you. And it does not include your plans, and it does not include your rules. I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance. And what the father should have done culturally, he should have took this boy out publicly, slapped his face, read his sins, and then denounced him, buried him to the family, kicked him out. He was done. And if you think that's too tough, Deuteronomy 21 says that he could have been killed for the way he responded here. You do not shame the father. This could be a capital offense. But, but what, what happens? And then look what, what he does with this. This is horrific. 
because he, he would not have received money. He would receive part of the land. That's part of the inheritance. And, and what you do with the land is you hang on to it. You, you don't get rid of it. You don't sell it. And you notice he liquidates the assets because he takes the, the, the proceedings and goes off with it. That means he sold the land. This land belonged to his grandfather and his great-grandfather and his great-grandfather all the way to Joshua. I mean, this was part of God's promise to him. This was, this was a little bit more than just family stuff. This was God's promise to him. And so his selling it is saying, I want nothing to do with God's promises. And then he takes this and he goes off to a distant land, which means he leaves the nation of Israel. He goes outside its borders. And so what's he saying? He's giving God the finger, basically, is what he's doing. I want nothing to do with God. I don't want anything to do with this family. I don't want anything to do with the nation of Israel. I don't want anything to do with God. I'm out of here. I don't need his promises to live my life. How many, you know, folk like this? I don't need God to mess up my life. I'm going to go live it on my own. That's what this kid was saying. This is what I was going to do. And, and they all knew what, what he uh, should have done. Uh, and if, in fact, the story ended here, the Pharisees would be just a little bit bent out of shape. How dare this pompous, arrogant kid to make such a request. And they'd be upset at the father. I can't believe the father sold the land and gave some to him. What's he doing? They would have been upset. But the story doesn't end there, does it? Verse 14. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself off to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Now, famine at this time in history usually spent, meant financial collapse for the country that was sponsoring the famine that year. Um, the annals are filled with heinous things that happen. During, during a famine, the goal is not social etiquette. The goal is survival. And so cannibalism is usually huge. And if you're a foreigner and you've got no family... You can imagine your mortality rates suddenly jump substantially here. But this kid somehow gets away. He, he gets a job. He's not greeting at Walmart. What's he doing? He is a swineherd. And the Pharisees cannot imagine a more immoral job. I mean, this is just not an a, uh, icky job. This is an immoral job according to law, the Jewish law. Because he's not just interested in, in swine consumption, eating pork, He's going to raise it for other people. He's going to help other people disobey the law as well. And so this kid is in the pig pen. And it's, it says it here, I think Jesus paints this so masterfully. The pigs are better off than he is, right? They're eating better than he is. And, and it, he, Jesus texts this thing at the end, and no one gave him any compassion. No compassion for this kid. And if the story would end here, the Pharisees would say, Amen. That's right. This is the way it's supposed to end. Thank you, Jesus, for bringing a little civility to this otherwise goofy story. This kid finally gets what he deserves. A little honor is restored. All right, it's great. The story doesn't end there, does it? It goes on, verse 17. It says, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. Now, there's some interesting stuff here. First of all, the Pharisees could not imagine a worse squalor in this world than a pig pen in a pagan land. 
It's the worst possible place you could be. But yet, this is where God's going to use to bring this kid back, isn't it? I mean, this is, this is holy ground. And he talks about this repentance thing. This was a, a radical thing for the Pharisees. They could not understand this. This, this, this repentance from a life of, of sin was, was, was a category they did not have. Because the way you were righteous is you, 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 you did the right things. You lived your life sacrificially committed to the law. That's how you gained righteousness. And so if you blew it off and you just went off on your own, you decided to come back. It's too late. You've lost too much time. There's no such thing as repentance like that. So they're not sure what to do with this. But if he does come back, they know what the father's going to do. I mean, if the story ended here, the Pharisees would say, well, I know what's going to happen. I mean, obviously, he goes back to the father. The father will do one of two things. Number one, he may sequester the boy to a far corner of the ranch and never see him. Remember, David did this with Absalom. Remember, Absalom comes back to Jerusalem. David says, he cannot see my face. And so while this is going on, Absalom's in town, but he can't see David's face. He was bringing shame back on Absalom. This is what the father would do. Or the father would bring the child out publicly, slap him in the face, and pronounce his sins, have him beaten mercilessly. And if he survives, he could be one of the father's lowest slaves. That, that's what the father would do. They were so sure that that's what would happen. But the story doesn't end there, does it? Jesus gives them some food for thought in uh, verse 20, probably the most radical verse in this passage. They certainly weren't looking for this. So he goes up, gets up, he goes to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. Now, he wasn't filled with anger and bitterness and vindictiveness towards this kid, but compassion. And the fact that he was, he was looking for him, he saw him when he was a good ways off, demonstrates that he was looking for the child. Maybe the whole time the kid was gone, the whole time the kid was gone, father's heart was looking for him, longing for him, desiring him. And so maybe he'd climb up to his tower every, every day and look down the road, strain his eyes, looking for him. And when he saw him coming, it was filled with compassion. Now, you ever have a, a child maybe walk away from the Lord? And if he comes back, what, what, what's going on in your heart? Well, you can imagine what the father's feeling. And so it, it says that the father runs to, to this, this boy. Now, now, children ran and slaves ran, but, but grown men, especially wealthy landowners, did not run. And the word here is to sprint. And so if he was to sprint, that means he would have to hold up his robes to, to, make, to get the speed up. This was as fast as he could go. And you never showed your bare legs. This was a shame. You know, the New Testament written in Arabic wasn't until 1860 that they actually translated this word run. Because still, in the Middle Eastern world, it was a shame for a man to run, show his legs. But he did. This is the only time, only time in Scripture that God the Father is presented as running and if jesus hadn't said it it'd probably be suspect oh that's just some wild metaphor somewhere really but jesus said this that he ran and when he gets to the boy what does he do i mean can you imagine this kid he's coated with with pig dung i mean he's got to be smelling pretty bad and the father comes up to him and goes whoa hey uh, shower let's get this kid a shower no what's he do he grabs him he holds him tight and then he starts kissing him He's kissing this kid. And and, and the Pharisees are probably freaking out because not only is he doing all this, he's doing it publicly. It can't get any worse. 
And Jesus says, oh, it does get worse. Wait till you see what happens next. And so the, 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 the father starts talking. Well, it says in 21, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. You know, he's going through this thing that he rehearsed. Doesn't finish it. This is kind of important. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on and put a ring on his fingers and sandal on his, uh, sandals on his feet. The kid starts talking. He starts going through this, this litany of stuff. And it's almost as if the father's saying, yeah, 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 right, right. Yeah, yeah, quick, hurry, hurry, bring the robe for this guy. Now, you gotta, gotta, don't take me out of context. Hear what I'm saying. When we repent, words are important, but words are not necessary. Right? They're not necessary. Maybe you think sometimes, did I say it right? Did I forget something? If some, your child comes to you and they're breaking down and they're falling apart, but they're very repentant and they're sad and they're trying to get the words out, but they're blubbering and you don't understand half of them. Are you, are you really pushing? No, what did you say? What was that? No, you know it's in their heart. You care what they say is almost irrelevant. Their heart is broken. They're, they're back. And so you're there. You're with them. Same thing with, with us and God. When we come to him, he said, now, now, it's interesting what the father does to this boy. He says he gets him a robe. Now, does he make this kid shower up, get cleaned up before he gets the robe? Oh, no. Publicly, people are looking. They got to know that this is his son. So he gives him the robe. And on top of that, then he calls for the sandals. Slaves didn't wear sandals. The sons wore sandals. Put sandals on his feet. And then... He gives them the ring. And the ring, no doubt, has the family crest in it. So when they would make their deals and set the family negotiations and sign checks, they would pour the wax and they would put the crest on it. Father is giving this kid 100% authority back. Now, now, let me ask you, how much restitution did this kid make? How much penance did he do? How much time did this kid spend in purgatory? Oh, none. None. When you got on your knees uh, by your bed, however it worked for you way back when, and your heart was broken and you were calling out to God, before you finished your prayer, God had run to you. He was waiting for you. You were clothed with the robe of Jesus. You were complete 100% sonship. You're not going to become more of a son as you do nice things down the road. You were 100% a son at that point in history. And that's what was, was going on here. And, and the, the, the Pharisees were, were bent, bent out of shape. And then just to put a little icing on the cake, Jesus says, the father said to us, oh, excuse me, verse 23, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate, you know, celebrate. They're having a party. And, and these celebrations were not private affairs. They were always community-wide events. And they were always, in the, throughout the Old Testament, New Testament, they were, they were always, always, always spiritual events. They were, there was no such thing as a secular party. They were always spiritual events. And so what Jesus is saying is something just happened here that has such spiritual significance that they cannot not celebrate. And so they're having this major party. And the Pharisees at the story had ended here. They'd be up and mad. They'd be saying, what a, a ridiculous, unorthodox, culturally offensive, semi-blasphemous story. And they would have nothing but judgment for Jesus in his stories. But the story doesn't end there, does it? Jesus stops and says, you know, hey, there, there, there were two brothers. Let's talk about the, the big brother for a minute. In verse 25, it says, meanwhile, 
The older son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard the music and dancing, so he called one of the servants and he asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back, safe and sound. And you can just see the wheels turning in Big Brother's mind. Huh. The, uh, put, a, put, a, put a robe on him? Oh, yeah, yeah, put a robe on him. Huh. Sandals? Oh, yeah, sandals. Didn't give him the... Yeah, he did give him the ring, huh? Okay, okay. Let's take just a second to look at what's going on in Big Brother's heart. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered the father, Look, all these years to give him. A couple of things as as we, we, we look at this for just a second. Characteristics of big brother. Little kid brothers are easy to, to, to recognize, aren't they? Where are kid brothers? They're in the gutter. They're in rehab. They're you know, in Southern, uh, you know, Southern California on math. They're Colorado trying to find themselves. You know, kid brothers are easy. We all know. And, and they know where they're at, too. They know they're far from God, and that's cool with them. That they're right. But big brothers, let me ask you, where would we find big brothers at? Where do you think? Probably church, right? Now, big brothers, here's a characteristic of big brothers. Big brothers, we say, are more lost than kid brothers because big brothers don't know they're lost. See, big brothers have defined lostness, like the Pharisees. Is, you know, if you do the right things, you're in. If you don't do the right things, you're out. And, and, and Jesus is, is redefining lostness for them. He's saying, oh, no, 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 lostness is a heart estranged from the Father, regardless of what you're doing. Because you hear, notice here that the older brother was not inside celebrating. He was not inside enjoying intimacy with the father. He was outside. This is the irony of the whole story. The Pharisees thought they were on the inside, but no, no, really they're on the outside. Tim Keller lets us know that Jesus here introduces a, a second form of lostness. This is much more dangerous because the folk who are lost in the big brother syndrome think that they're okay. They think, they think they're, they're, they're fine. Look, at, we've got a text here. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector, right? One on the inside, one on the outside. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, even like this tax collector. These are the guys on the outside. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Now, now stop for a second. Let me ask y'all. How many of y'all, no, we're not going to show, show hands here, fast twice a week and tithe? This guy's doing pretty good, right? This guy's got some religious discipline. He's, he's doing some good things. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man... Rather than the other went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exhausted. Exhausted. Exalted. Sorry. There might, might be some truth in what I said anyway, right? All right. Let's, let's try to regroup. How do you regroup after that one? Okay. Jesus said to them, Matthew 21, I tell you the truth. The tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent 
and believe him. And the Pharisees would be saying, repent of what? For crying out loud, I fast twice a week. You want three times? You want me more than tithe? I tithe my little spices. I tithe everything. I can't, what am I supposed to repent of? And again, Keller reminds us that what they were to repent of was the same thing that the younger brother was to repent of. Ultimately, the younger brother was to repent of being estranged from the father as showed forth in unrighteousness. The older brother was to repent from being estranged from the father as demonstrated by his self-righteousness. That's huge. That's huge. Older brothers, big brothers, are more lost than kid brothers. And this is a danger for any of us who've grown up in the church. It can be a danger. And a second characteristic Though of big brothers, you see. The big brothers view their um, obedience as drudgery. Verse 29, but he answered his father, look, all these years. Now, if you were to bounce back to verse 21, we don't have it on the screen. But when the kid brother comes to the father, what's he say? He says, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. But when the older brother talks to the father, what's he say? Does he address him as father? Oh, no, no, no. Look. All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Look at the way he views obedience. It's drudgery. Yeah, he wears it as a badge. I have sacrificed so much for you. And I've done all these things that you've required that I do. These nitpicky, stupid, dig old filming rules. I've kept them all completely. That's what I've done. Now, obedience is hard sometimes, but for those who are not estranged from the Father, even though it's hard sometimes, we recognize it is a joy, and and it it is a a privilege that we get. So if you're sitting here, and you're trying to do the things God has called you to do, but they are just drudgery, maybe you've got more big brother in your veins than you think. Big brothers not only view obedience as as drudgery, but sometimes they view obedience as a road to entitlement. Look what what he says here. He says, I've slaved for you. I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Now, now think for for a second. The kid brother leaves home. Now, why do kid brothers leave home? I mean, just, just think for, blow off the text for a minute. Just think... Regular common sense. Kid brothers leave home, don't they? Because they want fun. Because they want to live their life. They want their friends. They want to have a good time. And they're afraid that the father's rules are going to hamper and keep them from getting it. But that's what they want. But what does big brother want here? He wants a goat. He wants his friends. He wants to party. He wants the exact same thing. But the only difference is Big Brother's going to go about getting it a little different. He knows that, that the father holds the reins, and so you better not hack him off. You've got to do all the stupid things the father wants you to do and make him feel like you're on his side. So he will give you. That's how he's going to get things. And you, 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 you hear this, don't you, in the church on a regular basis. After all I've done for you, and I've sacrificed, and I've given, and I've been, and I've done, and I've done. I've poured out myself. I'm just asking for this one little thing. Would you please just give me this thing? Can't you just give me this thing after all I've done for you? It's a, it's a road of entitlement. That's my obedience. You owe me, Father. That's Big Brother stuff. That's where Big Brother's coming from. And so if you were to ever approach God in that, that vein, you've got to know that you've got more Big Brother going through you than you care to think. 
Big brothers also disdain kid brothers. They might not, might not say it outwardly, verbally, but they say it non-verbally. Uh, verse 30, he says this, he says, When this son of yours, you're not my brother, right? When this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes. You know, it's so interesting, is it never mentions that that's how the kid brother squandered the money. How does the big brother know how the kid brother squandered the money? Maybe this is the way he would have done it. He, he says, when you squandered your property with prostitutes. I think he's projecting here. I think so. He comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. It's not fair the way you, you, you treat him and then the way you treat me. Do not our very words indict us on this. And then stories wrapped up. Jesus wraps up the story. Verse 31. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. You know, this is an interesting ending. If the story ended here, we might say, well, what happened to big brother? I mean, what does he do? I think the reason why this story is left open-ended is Jesus is standing toe-to-toe with these Pharisees. And he kind of hands them the pen and he says, Big brother, what are you going to do? Write for me the ending. And we can envision a good ending here, can't we? Big brother falls to his knees. And he's cut to the quick and he realizes that, 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 that he is estranged from the father and he's been using good things to try to manipulate the father. And so he cries out, Father, I'm not worthy to be your son. I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. And the father would pick him up and embrace him and say, come on in and let's celebrate. That's the way it should have ended, right? But that's not the way it ended. MacArthur reminds us that this story is picked up again for real in chapter 22. And the Pharisees would write a different ending. And it would be something like, big brother looks around for the biggest stick he can find. And as the father gets close, he hits him as hard as he can. And then he hits him again and again and again until father's lifeless body is at his feet. And then he tries to wipe the blood off his hands. And grabbing the blood-stained stick, he goes looking for kid brother. That's, that's what would happen. That's the way it would end. And we might say today, well... If, that's the, way, if the story ended here, we'd say, well, that's a wild story, man. Well, well, okay, I've got a pot roast and I've got... And then, the story doesn't end there, though. Because today, I think Jesus drops this story in your lap, as well as mine. And he gives you the pen. He says, how are you going to write it? How's it going to end? And so let's, let's, let's think for just a second. Maybe you're here today and you are kid brother. And, and you are ashamed some stuff you've done, some stuff you're doing. Maybe you're, you really are wanting to come back. But I see this, and maybe you've seen this too. I'm afraid to come back because I'm afraid of probably the same thing I was afraid of when I left, Big Brother. I'm afraid of his judgment, and that people are not going to understand. People are going to get mad, and they're going to roll their eyes, and they're going to judge me, and therefore I can't come back. A couple things, if that's going through your mind. First of all, it's probably more than anything else projection because... I know, don't know a ton of folk yet here, but those I know, I'm telling you, there's a lot of kid brothers here who could tell you stories of God's grace, who, who can look back and say, this is what I've done. He called me, and they're not going to be facing you with rejection. There could be some big brothers in here, though, and they may roll their eyes and judge. But please, if you're in the kid brother seat this morning, don't let big brother write your future. 
You see, Big Brother thinks he owns this place, but he does not. The Father owns this place. And the Father always, I mean, always has, has grace and love for anybody who repents from anything. It's his place. Maybe you're, as we talk this morning, back voice in the back of your mind somewhere, thinking, you know, maybe I've got a little Big Brother in me. Don't, don't, don't shut that voice down. Don't t- turn that off. Maybe the Spirit's convicting. And, and today, what, what, what Jesus would want you to know is the Father does not hate big brothers, but he would come to you saying, you need to repent because you're just as lost. Maybe more so. We're to do our acts of righteousness, but out of love for him, not to gain merit and gain manipulative power with God. Third person in this story, though, and this is really what the story is all about. This is why Jesus is telling it. It's the Father. And Jesus is letting these guys know. He's letting us know the most important thing to the Father. We're not talking a most important thing. Again, it's the only time in Scripture, the only time when God the Father runs, the only time. And he's not running to, uh, for ecological reasons. He's, Jesus did not come to save Mother Earth. And there's, ecology, is, we, 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 need, we need to take care of, of be good stewards, but that's not why Jesus came. Jesus did not come primarily for social reasons. And, and it doesn't take more than a, you know, a remedial reading of Scripture to find out that God is very interested in social justice, very interested. But that's not the primary reason why Jesus came. The, for us, there's just so many things that clamor to be front and center in our lives. And all these other things that may be good things can never be front and center in our life if our hearts are going to reflect God's. And it's got to be a love and grace to see other people come into a right relationship with him. And perhaps this morning, your heart just needs to shift. You've gotten tied up with too many of the issues. They're important issues, but they've become first and foremost, and they ought not to be first and foremost. Can you imagine? Just think for a second. Can you imagine a place where there are no big brothers, where all the big brothers have come into the party? Can you imagine what, what might happen here, if that was the case, Let, let's let's take a moment to pray. If you bow your heads with me, and just where you're seated, uh, he's here. He's been looking. If you're far off, he's been looking for you to come back. His grace and mercy's there. You don't have to do anything before he clothes you with the robe of Jesus' righteousness. Maybe your big brother. And you've been doing all this stuff, but you are outside the party. You are outside intimacy with him. You need to know he's coming to you to plead for you to repent. God, it's so easy to complicate Christianity. You've called us to you and you've given us your word. You've called us to obey it. But we can turn it into a list of rules that separate us from you. And so I pray, Lord, for myself and for my brothers and sisters here, would you help us to obey? Would you help us to obey out of love for you? Would you help my heart and the heart of these folks, God, to reflect your grace and your love for big brothers and kid brothers in this world until you call us home in Jesus' name? Amen.